Hello, my name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro The Simpsons movie and pro John Let's Go podcast, where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week, we have watched a comedy film that I quite like. It is a British comedy film called Death at a Funeral. It's a movie that is very dear to our hearts. Yes. For reasons we will get into. Yes. But before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure thing. Um, I have a very varied week this week. A lot of very different movies, a lot of genre movies, but some other ones as well. I'm going to start with Right at Your Door. It is a thriller film directed by Chris Gorak. It is set in Los Angeles, where a series of dirty bombs are detonated uh, and chemicals get in the air. And the government issues instructions to everyone seal their houses and stay inside. And Brad, played by Rory Cochran, waits as long as he can before he does so. But then his wife, Lexi, played by Mary McCormack, arrives home from work. She's infected by whatever this chemical thing is, and he's got to decide whether to let her in or not. Uh, this is tight and it's tense. It's like an episode of The Twilight Zone or Alfred Hitchcock Presents or one of those things. It's very premise-driven. And the, the low budget that it has, it's an independent film, the low budget it has forces its focus. It is very ground-level in terms of how it's dealing with things. Um, you're not seeing, you know, authority figures or really getting information on what's going on you never find out who's responsible for the bombs or why they were set off or what whatever that's not the point of it the point of it is this sort of ground level recounting of this attack brad gets all of his information from the radio and that stuff's chaotic it's changing all the time as new information comes in it's contradictory and that stuff's all really effective but i would say that the central moral dilemma is not addressed enough neither Brad nor Lexi have as much trouble dealing with the emotional situation that they're in as they should. There's this addition of a of a gardener from a neighbouring house, you know, someone that the neighbouring house hired to do the garden, um, and he takes refuge in the house before Brad seals it up. That's kind of pointless. You could have cut that. But it's a solid script. You've got robust performances, uh, some very dark suspense, but it does run a little too long. It runs out of ideas of what it can really do with its premise. Uh, and it backs itself into the corner regarding the ending. Uh, it's like they wanted unpredictability and adrenaline, but they hadn't really built a movie that justified it or needed it. And so when they go in that direction, it feels dishonest. Uh, there's an alternate ending on the disc. or just script, but it's better. I next saw No Telling. It is a psychological drama directed by Larry Fessenden, and it follows a scientist named Jeffrey, played by Stephen Ramsey. He is experimenting on animals for medical research, and his wife Lillian, played by Miriam Healy Louie, is increasingly disillusioned with what he's doing. So I should just say off the top that this is the first of a few older movies that I'm going to be talking about because it was included in a Blu-ray release from Scream Factory, the Larry Fessenden collection of, of a bunch of his cult films. I only really wanted to see one of them. The fourth one I'm going to be talking about of his, the fourth and final. But I did watch these others as well. And they're all small, independent genre films, very low budget. And as with most of his movies, the ideas are okay, but they're just so messy. This is Frankenstein and the Island of Dr. Moreau for the Greenpeace generation. And it, it has a point of view and it pursues it, but it's preachy. It can't stop lecturing, and that undoes the impact. Instead of just showing us the meaning through the images, we have to have the everything telegraphed to us in, in too bold a way. The narrative ends up being quite meandering. The relationships 
between the characters develop quite poorly. Jeffrey is just way too psychotic a character. He starts the movie psychotic. He has nowhere to go. And for most of the movie, Lillian just doesn't... For most of the movie, Lillian doesn't even know that he's doing this experimentation. She just doesn't like he's not spending enough time with her because he's in his lab. So that kind of confuses the point that they're trying to make for the first half. But then there's this potential affair that she's considering with a handsome neighbor that ends up being dropped and ends up being totally pointless. It tries this sort of infertility parallel between the, the sort of medical experimentation that's going on and her concerns about her own potential infertility. It tries to create some sort of parallel there that it can never quite land. So the movie should have probably had the guy be a little bit more charming. Yeah, it needed a more consistent and less forceful point of view or a more consistent mm. and less in-your-face point of view. It didn't need to be less forceful, but it needed to be less like waving it, it, like it is basically the cinematic equivalent of grabbing a, a a dead lab animal and like waving it in your face like that's that's what it is and it needed to be a little more subtle than that so it's got a bit of a focus problem yeah it's better with its themes and its imagery um it, it keeps cutting back to meat as in food you know sliced up roasts fish being prepared for for meals and stuff like that and that sort of intentionally matched with these images of these um, dissected animals in the lab in an interesting way there is a an image that is the poster of the film even uh, it's in the film but it's also the poster of jeffrey sort of has bought this calf for further experimentation on he's dragging it to his lab and it's like pulling back and it's like him in silhouette at the top of this hill with this calf pulling against him and him trying to pull the calf to its death uh it's got good production value considering its its scale and size fessenden is a very talented director and he's always got very interesting ideas uh, i just didn't really connect with this one or indeed most of his movies next i saw habit it's another fessenden movie a supernatural drama this time it follows a high functioning alcoholic named sam played by fessenden himself he meets an enigmatic woman named anna played by meredith snader She's a bit kinky. She likes biting. But each encounter starts to sap his strength. And he starts to suspect that Anna is maybe not all that human. It's an interesting little mediation on addiction. Um, The vampirism is the allegory. The real threat is addiction, negative emotion, self-destructive behavior, you know, associating with people who aren't good for us, stuff like that. It misses an opportunity, I think, by making it very obvious to the audience very early on that she's a vampire. We know long before he does. We see stuff that he doesn't see. And I think that's a mistake. I think it should have been left ambiguous right up until the final moment that you really don't know whether he's just losing his mind or not. But it doesn't make good on that. Fessenden is very good as Sam. He's the best in the cast, actually. It's not a very good cast, but I don't really blame the movie for that. It's like an incredibly small movie, incredibly cheap. The cast is done nothing before and nothing since for the most part it's filmed in four by three very stuffy audio it's not very good production values he clearly didn't have much of a budget to do with this but once again he has good ideas but also once again he doesn't spend enough time on them there's a lot of subtext with his friends and his father that i feel like could have been used more but it also really doesn't need to be almost two hours long it loses energy it's flawed but it's scrappy it's interesting, though. If you would like to check it out, it's available for streaming in Australia on Shudder. I next watched Wendigo, also by Fessenden. And don't get too excited, John. It's not what you want it to be. I love the myth of the Wendigo. It's a psychological drama 
following a family of three. Father George, played by Jake Webber, Mother Kim, played by Patricia Clarkson, and young son Miles, played by Eric Per Sullivan, who is Dewey from Malcolm in the Middle. Huh. They spend a huh. weekend in the woods of upstate New York, and Miles is sort of just confused by all of the contentious adult things that are going on. I thought we were going to say that he's confused by the amount of trees. <laughs> but they, the family has a scary encounter with a, a deer-hunting neighbour named Otis, played by John Sparadicus, and... It's sort of him trying to figure out, trying to deal with all of this stuff that's going on. You know, his father's midlife crisis is, you know, being scared of this neighbour, stuff like that. It's not a monster movie. Anyone here wanting to see a Wendigo chase people through the woods, they're not going to see it. You need to look further on down in Larry Fessenden's filmography for that, because he wrote Until Dawn. He also started it. He is the bearded crazy guy that you initially think is the slasher until he turns up. It was just a prank hand. It's all, this movie is all about clashes. He is, it is geographical, ideological. It's about displaced people, um, both Native Americans and more, more recent white refugees, like economic refugees who have been displaced. The Wendigo is just an idea. It's a stand-in for revenge and anger and violence. And it's the movie's all seen through Miles' eyes. He's trying to make sense of everything that he's seeing, all the difficult concepts that are around him. And after hearing the legend of the Wendigo, he uses that as a tool to sort of visualise it and understand what's going on around him. It tries for ambiguity, but it doesn't work because I think, like, it wants you to think that there might actually be a Wendigo, but the way that the movie is framed, no. It clearly is not. And it's so slow. So much of it is meandering and aimless. The third act saves it. It's where it all crystallizes. It's where it all makes sense. But it still doesn't justify the homework that we've done to get there. Uh, Jake Webb is very good, though. Patricia Clarkson is good. It's certainly the best cast that Fessenden has had in one of these movies up till this point. And he has also improved as a director and he has a budget. And he has some some quite clever tricks that he uses here, but I can't really endorse it too strongly. Next up, the last of these Fessenden movies, and the only one I would call an outright horror movie, is The Last Winter. And it follows an oil crew in the Alaskan tundra. They're getting ready to open up a new drilling station. But the permafrost around there is thawing thanks to climate change. And something might be getting out due to that thaw. And very eerie stuff starts happening. This is the best of these these Fessenden films. It's all about the environment. It's all about climate change. I mean, all of these movies are about allegories in some ways. He likes that, Fessenden does. But this has a very gloomy and cold sort of tone to it. It unfolds its story very well. It starts a little bit slow for my taste, but it ultimately ends up... I mean, you're thinking from the setting something like The Thing, but that's not it. This is The Shining. And the threat, what is actually going on? What is actually... I mean, there is something out there that's preying on them, but what it is is kept ambiguous. And I think that that is sensible. It's actually the moments where Fessenden comes close to being unambiguous that are the least effective, mostly because he doesn't have the CGI work and he's a little overambitious for the stuff that he tries to depict. I I will say that it doesn't entirely land the whole climate change debate very well. The character of Pollock, played by Ron Perlman, is the oil man who doesn't want to hear from all these climate people and he's just too one note he's too much of a straw man for you to really get invested in the ideological discussion that's going on here and he just has the exact conflict you'd expect him to have with this environmental impact analyst 
Guy Hoffman, played by James Legros. But it's a strong cast. I mentioned Perlman and Legros. You've also got Connie Britton and Kevin Corrigan. The cast is quite good altogether. It does show its budget sometimes. That I mentioned the CGI has limitations, but they also have a complete inability to pull off the last scene. They don't have the budget to show it, so instead Fessenden chooses not to show it and just so show the character's reaction to it. But he spends so much time building up to it that it feels like a cheat. Yeah, that would feel incomplete. Yeah, but if you want to check it out, it's available for streaming on Shudder in Australia. Would you recommend it? Yeah, yeah. Not a strong recommend, but a weak one. You know, solid four out of five. I next up watched two movies that were not on the list in any capacity because I needed to see them to write an essay. I have a 4,500-word essay on Shakespeare adaptations that I have written, and in pursuit of that, I watched two old Shakespeare movies. The first of them is Franco Zeffirelli's 1968 adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. Uh, It is a romance film based on the William Shakespeare play of the same name. And this one is a very traditional and conservative adaptation. It's set in olden times. Verona follows the competing families of the Capulets and the Montagues. Romeo's a Montague. He's played by Leonard Whiting. Juliet is a Capulet. She's played by uh, a woman with the incredibly unfortunate name of Olivia Hussey. And, I mean, you know how this goes. You know where this story goes. They tell you at the beginning. Yeah, both of these films are very traditional adaptations of the plays. That's why I watched them. I'd already watched stuff like Romeo plus Juliet and Ian McKellen's Richard III, you know, and uh, and Gangster Macbeth. I needed traditional adaptations to balance them out for the essay. This one didn't connect with me. It's too rigid and unyielding. It's got very old-fashioned acting and presentation. I'm not sure I whether I'm going to blame the age, though, because... I liked the next movie I'm going to be talking about better, and it's even older. The realistic setting is nice, but it's really poorly shot. Like, it got an an Oscar nomination for cinematography, and I'm like, how? Because this is kind of ugly. Yeah, it's not... I've seen this one, and I wouldn't call it visually spectacular. Yeah. A lot of the actors are dubbed in post because of, like, noise on the set. And it's poor dubbing because you can see that the mouths aren't totally matching. Fun fact, though, apparently Juliet's father is voiced by Laurence Olivier. He's not in the movie in in physical form, but apparently the actor who played him had such a strong Italian accent that they just chose to dub him over with Laurence Olivier in post because Olivier was already doing the opening narration. Well, that brings a bit of unintended symbolism. The leads are really good, though. Uh, Whiting and Hussey. They're both very good. It runs a little long. I mean, they've got. It's, it's clear that Zeffirelli has gotten a bit socially excited at the prospect of doing a proper sword fight for the middle section, you know, the big sword fight between Tybalt and Mercutio and then Tybalt and Romeo. And that scene is extended way too much. It's almost 20 minutes long. It loses momentum in the way that it's staged. So if you're going to watch Romeo and Juliet on film, I would still argue watch Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. But if you're going to watch like a traditional Romeo and Juliet, watch a recording of the RSC or the Globe theatre productions. Hmm, They both have more vitality than this. Next up, though, I saw Richard III, It is a drama directed by Laurence Olivier. It's from 1955, this one. Uh, It's based on the William Shakespeare play of the same name. And it follows the scheming Prince Richard, played by Olivier, who wants the throne. And so he goes all house of cards to take out the competition and become king. This is still a little staid in its presentation, but it has so much more vitality. There is an obvious passion that Olivier has for the material that it really seems to me like Zephyrilli didn't. Or... 
or or at the very least a connection with the source material's urgency. It's almost entirely stage bound. It's all filmed indoors except for the finale, and it's it's a good framing of that stuff. It's you know well shot, very interestingly put together. Olivier likes to film everything in long takes, so you'll get like two to three minute takes. I mean, the opening soliloquy that he does to camera is just one long, unbroken five-minute shot. Well, I mean, he's a stage actor, so... And he plays with shadows as a theme. I mean, the idea that Richard is is manipulating events, he follows that through by literally focusing in on Richard's shadow falling over other characters or falling over, you know, props and sets in a way that is symbolic. It doesn't fully succeed in paring it all down. A lot of the characters are poorly distinguished from each other. It doesn't take advantage of the medium of film to make some of the exposition more digestible. Why don't we see some of the things that they're telling us? Like, that's what, that's what really comes down to. We should be seeing some of this. I was struck by some comparisons to the Ian McKellen version. McKellen didn't direct the 1995 version, but he did write it and adapt it. And he is way more willing to kill his darlings than Olivier is. Olivier wants to keep as much as possible in. It is abridged. You know, the, the unabridged Richard III is like three and a half hours. The Olivier version is two and a half. The McKellen version is two hours. But McKellen is way more willing to move dialogue, cut subplots, cut characters. He keeps it rolling at a much faster pace. Olivier doesn't. And so it can't really keep up a consistent energy. I mean, I think like McKellen's version just starts with the soliloquy. Now is the winter of our discontent. Olivier keeps the 10 minutes of preamble leading up to that. So that's a big difference. The design of it all looks good. The restoration of it by the Criterion Collection that I watched is spectacular. Like it is gorgeous. And they include this 12 minute long featurette behind the scenes, which is Martin Scorsese, who is this patron of this not-for-profit company that helped restore it. It was it really was a rescue work because all of the material was on the verge of being unusable. Like they had to go in now and correct it or it was going to go away. And actually, it's the first time this version of it came out in, I think, 2012. It's the first time in decades that Olivier's original version has been freely available because when it came out in the US, the US distributor like cut a whole bunch and then it was further cut for television airings down the years. And so basically, you've been seeing a version of the movie that for many years that has had a good 20 minutes taken out of what Olivier intended. And they found all of that footage in boxes in different places and restored it all. The Olivier cut. And it's actually really impressive because they have the before and after of the restoration that that they've done. And it's, it's like, you know, they have done a really spectacular job of this. The acting's very old-fashioned. It's not my thing. I mean, again, I keep coming back to the Ian McKellen, Richard III. I mean, Ian McKellen does does the whole, you know... Why I can smile and murder while I smile. Like, very sort of sinister and, you know, deadly. He's talking to the audience. Whereas Olivier's like... I can smile and murder whilst I smile. <laughs> it's like, all right, let's... <laughs> This is not really my thing. Little, like, I am a, I am a prince. Daddy was my pony. It's a little more Lord Farquaad. When you combine it with the fact that the Olivier Richard III is clearly the basis for Lord Farquaad, like anyone, anyone at home who is doubting what I'm saying, Google Richard III, Lawrence Olivier. It is the same outfit, the same hairstyle, the same nose. It looks like it's a prosthetic (laughs) nose on Olivier. Like it's, it's exact. Yeah. Like, it's incredible. Yeah, 
Yeah. But you also get good supporting performances by John Gielgud. And one of the murderers of Clarence is played by a very young Michael Goff. Oh, I did not even that. recognize until I saw his name in the credit. I had to look up who he was um, in the in the film and go and rewatch that scene. But anyways, back onto list stuff. I saw Three Ten to Yuma. It is a Western film directed by James Mangold. It's based on the Elmore Leonard short story of the same name, previously adapted in 1957 by Delma Daves. In it, an infamous outlaw named Ben Wade, played by Russell Crowe, has been captured, and a posse is put together to take him to the train station, the town with the nearest train station for transport to prison. Uh, and a desperate rancher who really needs the money, Dan Evans, played by Christian Bale, volunteers to be in this posse. But the whole gang of this outlaw are pursuing this posse to try and get their leader back under the command of the chief lieutenant to Russell Crowe, Charlie Prince, played by Ben Foster. This doesn't reinvent the wheel. It doesn't have to. It's fun. It's an old school Western that is like, that very much sort of frontier adventure. There's a little bit of hints as some revisionist stuff. Not much. It's more interested in action and characters. But Mangold tries to lace in something about, you know, the racial subtext of the Old West and things like that. He's not particularly supported by the script in that endeavour. But it is revisionist in the sense that it shares 21st century Hollywood's consensus opinion that the old west was probably a really shitty place to actually live yeah yeah it's not really romanticized in that way but it's a chase film essentially in a lot of ways it's kind of like mad max fury road on horses sick the posse is interesting you get lots of recognizable faces like peter fonda a young logan lerman alan tudyk as an old west like doctor hey as a mount back Awesome. You get a great performance by an actor I wasn't particularly familiar with, Dallas Roberts. He's quite good in this as well. The central dynamic here is between Wade and Evans, the outlaw and the rancher. And Crow and Bale are good, but Crow struggles in the role that he's been put into. He's not quite smooth enough for that sort of, I'm a charismatic outlaw that you want to hate me, but you just can't kind of kind of thing. He can't really sell that. As a good use of locations, it's all shot, you know, out, out in the desert and canyons and things. Looks great. I, but I don't for a second buy the ending. It is the product of what the writers think they need to put in rather than it actually being a logical end point of character arcs. The, the shootout leading up to it is far too long as well. It's familiar, but it's comfortable. I'm not, like I said, it's it's an old school Western. It's revisionist enough to fit in the 21st century, but old school enough to still be sort of very comfortable and recognisable. Put it this way, John Wayne would be happy to star in this film. He would, it would not be, it would be a Western he would be happy to star in and not a Western that would, I don't know, inspire him to try and storm the Academy Awards stage to beat a Native American woman. Yeah. Do I need to contextualise that for you? <laughs> No, 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 yeah. no, I know. Perhaps I should for the audience, just in yeah. case. Go for it. A Native American woman accepted Marlon Brando's award for acting one year in his absence. It was an agreed upon thing between her and Brando. And it was agreed upon thing that she did during the ceremony that she spoke about Native American representation in film. Brando was actually really supportive of that. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It was agreed between him and her. It was a statement that he was making. But uh, John Wayne was apparently so infuriated by this 
that he had to be physically restrained by his friends and bodyguards from doing a Will Smith and storming the Academy Awards stage to beat this Native American woman. Mm. I will never pass up an opportunity to remind the general public that John Wayne is canonically an asshole. I mean, there's yeah. Yeah. there's that. There's many racist quotes that you can find over the years from him. There's the Genghis Khan yeah, movie. He was a huge supporter of the Hollywood blacklist. Not a John Wayne fan. Anyways, this movie is streaming on Netflix and Stan if anyone's interested. Lastly, this week, I saw the first two movies in the Hatchet series. <laughs> Have you guys seen the Hatchet movies? No, but I'm aware of them. That sounds fun. I really wanted to do the first one in particular, but it's the only one of them not available for streaming anywhere in Australia, not even for purchase or rental. Really? Yeah. Oh. But this first one is a slasher comedy directed by Adam Green, and it's about a bunch of characters who go on this sort of ghost tour in the New Orleans swamp, and their ferry runs aground, and they're stuck in the middle of the swamp, and there they run afoul of a possibly undead local legend, Victor Crowley, played by Kane Hodder. Swamp, man, swamp, man, swamp, man. This is just like a pitch-perfect homage to 80 slashes. Like, it's fantastic. I mean, you got Kane Hodder. Yeah, exactly. It's got a great sense of heritage. Uh, a lot of the biggies are represented here. Hodder is there. Robert England gets a cameo, obviously hey. uh, representing Nightmare on Elm Street. Tony Todd, Candyman gets uh, a cameo. Yeah. And this will be something like, as I talk about in the sequels in a minute and also next week, Green will keep casting horror legends. Mm. But there are very creative kills. It's stuff that the MPAA would have pounced on in the old days, but he gets away with here. It looks and feels old-fashioned in a good way. It even seems visually old-fashioned. Like, it looks like it could just be an old movie from the 80s that no one had discovered until now. Everything seems like it's done in camera, practical effects-wise. Like, I don't think there's any CG in this, or at least none that I picked, outside of an opening credit sequence that's a bit stylized. It's very funny, too. Not in a meta, like, scream way, but in, like, a really witty one a character banter sort of one it's got a fun cast uh joel david moore who sounds so much like david schwimmer it's impossible to miss and a supporting performance by amara zaragoza that is quite good if it had actually been made in the 80s it would be considered a classic and lastly this week hatchet 2 again directed by green it is set the day after the first film and in the aftermath of that a posse enters the swamp to hunt down Crowley. It is unfortunately a big step down. It got a theatrical release, but it doesn't really feel like it should have to look at it. It really feels like those direct-to-video movies that a lot of those slasher franchises ended up devolving into. I will say, in defense of Hatchet as a franchise, this is the only movie that strikes this bad note. The other two that I'm going to be talking about next week are... One of them is is much improved from this, and the other one's just flat out great. But this one is generic and repetitive. It doesn't really have a narrative purpose. The first three movies, right, are set over the same 72-hour period. And Green's, like, talked a lot about how he had this idea for, you know, this horror trilogy. And he made this trilogy. And the fourth movie sort of a thing that he made later on is sort of a return, a Halloween 2018-style return to revitalize the franchise. But the plan at the beginning was these three movies. And it seems to me like he was so in love with the idea of a trilogy 
that he refused to admit that he didn't have a story for a second chapter. He only had a story for a first and a third. There's some unnecessary addition to the backstory of Victor Crowley here. They they stray a little too far to some of the mistakes that the Friday the 13th series started making or the Nightmare on Elm Street series started making in over-explaining why this guy is the way he is and getting a bit too absurd with it. The cast is weaker. It has some fun horror cameos as well, though, Tony Todd's cameo uh, is expanded out into a full-on supporting role. R.A. Malehov, or Mihailov, who played Leatherface in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, is in this. So is Tom Holland. Not that one, <laughs> but the much older director, Tom Holland, who directed Fright Night and Child's Play. A legend. Danielle Harris, who played the little girl in Halloween's 4 and 5. She's in this as well. She's replaced one of the actors from the first film who decided not to come back. But she's a bit disappointing here, mostly because of how Green is directing her and how he's written the script. She's sobbing a lot of her dialogue after what happened to her in the first film and actually kind of works against her characterization as a really tough, no-nonsense person in the first film. The only thing it really brings is more absurd deaths. Way more absurd deaths. And... Adam Green is on the bonus material on the Blu-ray talking about how proud he is that Hatchet 2 doesn't just double the amount of deaths from the first film, it almost triples it. And that might be the problem, that he's so excited about dispatching characters in ever more gruesome ways that he forgets to make us care who these characters are and make us invested for when they're actually dispatched. But this one is available for streaming on Prime Video in Australia, if anybody is interested. Anyways, that's me done for the week. What about you guys? What have you been watching? So we've watched another Amityville film, and we decided to go do one of the older ones from, like, the 1990s because they seem to be better. There's been more hits than misses when it comes to those ones, but this one is a miss. It's the Amityville Curse. It was from 1990. Utterly unaware of its dark past, Marvin and his wife, Debbie, decide to buy the evil Amityville house, it isn't really, to make a profit. However, as the couple, along with newlyweds Abigail and Frank, and their friend Bill, who is a fifth wheel, start to renovate the ramshackle colonial mansion right from the start, supernatural occurrences begin to happen, and Debbie starts having terrifying nightmares. Are those horrible visions connected to the brutal murder of a local priest years before? Or are they a warning from beyond? Can the unsuspecting residents escape from the Amityville curse? Thunder, lightning. It's not a good movie. Why did you say the character name of Debbie in such a strange way? Uh, I was referencing uh, the Adams Family Values. Oh, okay. This isn't great. It is boring. And that's its worst sin. It's boring. And the only times where it becomes at all interesting is with the performance of the character Debbie by Donna Whiteman, who's just flat out bad. It is not a good performance. Just a lot of hysterical screaming. She's trying to be Nell Crane. She's trying to walk through the house with a, you know, candle lit thing. She's and it's this whole thing, but it's writing checks that the performance cannot cash. At least a lot with a lot of these more independent fare, they are fascinating in their shithouseness, mm. if that's an adjective. But this one is just flat boring in a lot of ways. It it doesn't really go No, anywhere. it's got a twist which 
is not even in the least sort of implied at the beginning, barring like a few desperate pieces of dialogue, it ends up being such a weak final girl circuit that it boggles the mind the decisions made, not only by the characters, but by the filmmakers as well. It's sort of languid, in a sense. A twist has to at least be believably telegraphed. The groundwork needs to be laid. Yeah. yeah exactly, and, and none of that is done here to any sufficient no. standard. I do have to say that the location they're shooting in, actually does look a hell of a lot like uh, Ocean Avenue. Not necessarily the house, but definitely the... Not necessarily the house, but certainly the area. Yeah, the area is actually really, really close, considering the shot yeah. in Canada. Uh, they found a place that really does look like Long Island in the US. It's a gorgeous-looking old, very kind of gothically-styled mansion. So the location is I great. I mansion, but like... But not a house. it has truly... Nothing to do with Amityville. They pay most basic lip service to the history of the location, and then it is completely dropped for a narrative that is very weak. I have to give props to the, the actor Helen Hughes, playing the character of Mrs. Moriarty, the assistant to the priest who had died years prior. She is maniacal in this movie she is absolutely wild she bursts into the scenes like a breath of fresh air and it's enjoyable when she isn't getting so close physically to the other actors that it's making the audience uncomfortable in the first scene she shows up in post opening she has walked into the house just walked inside nothing a house that she doesn't belong in and is standing so close to the lead actor, and our position as audience is kind of looking up at them. Very slightly. And it's such an uncomfortable angle that I think, one, is deliberate, Mm. and two, is the only piece of evocative filmmaking in the piece, Mm. and I hated every fucking second of it. I squirmed in my seat. I felt literally uncomfortable saying at the screen, even though... The screen's not going to hear me. Please step hmm. away from me. But but all in all, like there's not much to say about this movie. It's it's honestly disappointing because the premise was at least interesting that it's a bunch of these out-of-town yuppies coming into this town that they know nothing about and are coming yeah. in and being like, oh, ghosts aren't real and all of this stuff. But they didn't, but they didn't they don't, work they don't with that. They don't do anything with that they don't do anything with like ghosts or anything it turns out to be just a basic boring kind of slasher that has nothing to do with amityville and it's honestly disappointing because these 80s and 90s ones have at the very least been interesting to watch if not flat out good none of them have topped it's about time i don't think any of the amityville movies will close Uh, but overall this one was just a waste of time yeah it's disappointing we have also watched a documentary this week on shutter it is called in search of darkness from 2019 Uh, so it's is it part one or part two or because there's so many of those it's a four hour part one yeah we watched it over three nights it is an exploration of 80s horror movies through the perspective of actors directors producers uh special effects craftspeople who made them and their impact on contemporary so as always i'm building the episode description as you do this i'm marking things down so i 
I type in in search of darkness, but I accidentally typed in inside search of darkness. The results of the three search of, in search of darkness movies, in addition to something called Darkness Devours My Soul from the Inside of My Mother-in-Law's Heart. That's a long what? title. It is a short from 2018 running one minute long, directed by some guy called Marco Romano. And I, it doesn't even have a story listing here. That is scary. <laughs> Don't anyway. watch it or you'll die in seven days. So yeah, this is an exploration of all these different 80s horror films, and it goes really deep in depth. Oh yeah, it's sequential. This is four hours and 24 minutes long. This is an undertaking. Mm. But as it is a documentary that is, you know, by structure segmented, uh, it's very easy to just knock out a, what an hour yeah. each night. Really, the coolest stuff here are the interviews that they have with people involved in industry, you get Doug Bradley, John Carpenter, Nick Castle, Jeffrey Combs, Sean S. Cunningham, uh, the voice himself, Keith David. You've got Joe Dante, uh, Kane Hodder, Tom Holland, and you've got more uh, modern figures in the horror space like James H. Janice from Dead Meat. And honestly, this was just a really, really great yeah. documentary. It's brilliant. Well, there was, there's already one sequel, another four hours and 20 minute yeah. sequel. Yeah. Um, but there's another sequel coming out this year. But they're also expanding it out. They have, there is a five hour and five minute documentary film that came out this year called In Search of Tomorrow, which is on sci-fi films. Yeah. And like Shudder not only has a lot of really interesting work that they've brought onto their service from independent filmmakers, really giving horror mm. a home, but... They've also looked into the past, recovered old films, at least the ones that can be recovered, because as they state in this documentary, a lot of really old horror movies that weren't transferred onto digital stuff like CD or Blu-ray have disappeared and are unable to be recovered, similar to the way a lot of silent movies, the majority of silent movies have disappeared. But... Shudder also provides a lot of really fascinating documentaries, and this is just another one of those. It's really cool to hear from a lot of these uh, figures from the industry, SFX people, so they can really dig down into what really makes effects work. They have a whole segment on the original yeah. The Thing, uh, which really sparked uh, an interest in me to watch it. The fact that you were able to find truly so many legendary figures from the industry yeah. for this. It's always really n cool seeing John Carpenter talk about yeah. not only the movies he was involved with, but really show his love for the industry. Uh, Nick Castle's here, and it's always really fun seeing him show up. Yeah, Kane Hodder tells a story about how he was asked to hold a baby at a horror convention years ago, and then... Years, years, years later, he was at a horror convention. A guy came up to him with a photo and said, that baby that you held, that was me. And he's there with his own family. And it's a, the documentary itself is a four-hour, 20-minute love letter to the genre while also taking the time to have different points of view, different aspects yeah. of, the, of the genre of, you know, the place of women in horror whether yeah. there's an issue with the more exploitative things or people's opinions that it's actually very feminist and very empowering certain depictions of women 
And it's yeah. fascinating to hear all of these sometimes contrary opinions being talked about because horror fans aren't a monolith. For some people talk about how much they love a certain movie, or others can tell about how much they hate yeah. it. And, and the documentary leaves space for disagreement and contrary viewpoints, and that is nice. Uh, no one's outwardly hostile, uh, but it is good to see that there's such a legacy when it comes to horror. And it told me, the documentary told me about horror movies I hadn't even known existed. And we're very interested in seeing them. Yeah. So if you're a horror fan, I would seriously recommend not only this documentary, but a lot of the other documentaries and documentary series they have on Shudder. There's Eli Roth's History of Horror. There's Horror Noir, which is about horror films from the perspective of people of color and creators of color. There's also Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, a history of folk horror. There's also a documentary all about the homoerotic subtext in Nightmare on Elm Street 2, and that's a really good documentary yeah. as well. So, yeah, I would just actually just recommend yeah, the sometimes, service. <laughs> sometimes it's a little spotty, sometimes, you know, yeah. the connection to the service a little bit on and off but overall it's a great service if you love horror but yeah i do recommend in search of darkness i'd be fascinated to see more of these but that's what we've seen within the week now we will play for you the trailer to death at a funeral who's this Pardon me? That's not my father. Oh, we've taken the wrong one. God, I hate funerals, don't you? They're just so depressing. Just the whole, I don't know, it's just the death and everything. If there's anything I can do, Sandra, don't put your hand there, dear. You'll leave smudge marks. Are you okay? I'm a bit nervous. Run our way to a funeral, you wanker! Don't you have any respect? Okay, calm down. Can I get you a cup of tea? Tea can do many things, Jane, but it can't bring back the dead. We can't fight what we had together. Justin, it was one night. It was a massive mistake. I was drunk out of my mind. You could have been a donkey. So what are you doing next weekend? Have one of these. It'll make you feel better. <laughs> the Valium you gave to Simon wasn't actually Valium. <laughs> it's an hallucinogenic concoction. I must be going mad. Why are my hands so big? <laughs> Exciting, isn't it? What? For a funeral, I mean, yes. Jane, see that guy standing by the table? See? Do you recognize him at all? He's really staring at me. I have some photos I wanted to show you. That's your dad, dressed up as a Roman centurion. So in what capacity were you actually friends with my dad? I was just telling George here how when we were boys together, your dad used to love to make us all go skinny dipping. <laughs> that was the trailer for Death at a Funeral. It is a dark comedy directed by Frank Oz, and it is set at the funeral of the patriarch of a British family. 
The deceased's nervous son, Daniel, played by Matthew McFadden, is trying to manage the whole thing with the patient help of his wife, Jane, played by Keely Hawes, carefully sparing his distraught mother, Sandra, played by Jane Asher, from anything too involved. He's giving the eulogy, but his confidence is shaken when it becomes clear that all of the gathered guests would rather hear his selfish writer brother, Robert, played by Rupert Graves, do it instead. He's also trying to manage a few last-minute complications. He has sent his friend Howard, played by Andy Nyman, to collect his cranky, wheelchair-bound Uncle Alfie, played by Peter Vaughan, from his retirement home. Along for the ride is Howard's buddy, Justin, played by Ewan Bremner, who is gate-crashing the funeral to make a play for his old one-night stand, Martha, played by Daisy Donovan. Martha has no interest. She's happy with her new hypochondriac boyfriend, Simon, played by Alan Tudyk, whom she has just agreed to marry. After a stressful encounter in traffic on the way to pick up Martha's brother, Troy, played by Chris Marshall, Simon takes a Valium from Troy's prodigious collection of pills. He and Martha are horrified, however, when Troy reveals that the pill wasn't Valium at all, but a hallucinogenic. With no real option, Martha and Troy try to manage the increasingly high Simon as the funeral continues. As if all of that wasn't enough to deal with, Daniel is taken aside by a mysterious stranger named Peter, played by Peter Dinklage. Soft-spoken and passive-aggressive, Peter reveals himself to be the dead man's secret lover and threatens to reveal graphic photos of their trysts to the entire funeral party if Daniel and Robert do not pay him £15,000. With events spiralling more and more out of control, Daniel tries to hold everything together and give his father a dignified send-off. But as sheer accidents and bad luck collude to undo all his best-set plans, Daniel must contend with the worst complication of all, an extra dead body. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on what we think of death at a funeral? Why don't you start us off, Sean? Are you ready? Yep. All right, three, two, one, go. I love this movie a lot. It's very charming. It's kind of twee, but it's also got this really, really grim and dark sense of humor. This movie is always funny to me. Alan Tudyk is amazing and who did you say was playing the friend who picked up uncle alfie andy nyman he's incredible here he plays the character with the nervous energy of a paranoid madman and i love it all right you ready harley yep three two one go i also have a good time with this one i do prefer to the american version because the british version just has more wit whereas the american version is just a lot more blunt uh, as is the difference between the two countries' sense of humor. What I like about this one is a lot of the performances. Tudyk is just outstanding. But you do get a lot of other really nice performances here. And it's funny. All right. Let me set myself up here. I don't like this movie as much as you two do. I like it, but I don't love it. And I think it's got a lot of problems. I think it's too overstuffed. It has too many characters. I think we can lose quite a few of them. I don't like some of the cruder bits of humor. And... I just think it's a little too watered down for an international audience. It doesn't feel British enough. This should be Monty Python. It should be nastier and more absurd than it is because the premise calls for it, but it isn't. This was one of the easiest production histories I've written in a long time. There's not much on the internet about the making of Death at a Funeral. It was filmed in London. Yep. yep. Matthew McFadden and Keely Hawes, the, the married, you know, the main son and the, his wife, 
they married in real life. Mm. And the rest here is from IMDb. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt, whether it's real or not. The role of Peter was not written for a little person. It was actually only adjusted after Peter Dinklage auditioned. Peter Vaughan, who plays Uncle Alfie, was apparently impossible to break during the filming, which is why during the end credits, yeah. he is the only person they couldn't get any footage of laughing because he stayed in character he's so he's much. He's a professional. And apparently the photographs that people react to of the apparent gay sex were real photos of gay pornography to elicit a stronger reaction or some such nonsense. I don't think this was... Why not try acting? It also kind of, that kind of goes into some of my sort of leeriness at the very 2007 mm. point of view on gay relationships, but whatever. On to more verifiable things. It had a worldwide staggered release over half a year. It started weirdly with Belgium in July of 2007. It didn't actually come out in the UK until November. Yeah, yeah. It came out in the US significantly earlier on the 17th of August 2007 where it only had a, a limited release, 324 theatres. It opened 17 against Superbad, The Invasion, and The Last Legion. It was a financial success. It made $46.5 million against a $9 million budget, and it was the 109th highest grossing movie of 2007. It came out in Australia, between the US and the UK releases, on the 11th of October, 2007. Its widest release here was in 187 theatres and it opened number two against Resident Evil Extinction, but it picked up speed over the next few weeks and became the number one spot. More than a quarter of the worldwide gross comes from Australia. It was a massive success here. It made $14.5 million. That's more than the US and the UK gross combined. It was actually the 14th highest grossing movie in Australia of 2007. It made more than Die Hard 4, 300, and Casino Royale. Jesus. There was, however, a lukewarm critical reception. It has a 62% Rotten Tomatoes score. The critics' consensus there reads, Death at a Funeral is a rousing British farce with enough slapstick silliness to overcome its faults. It didn't get nominated for many awards. The only one that I actually think is, is really worth talking about here, I've mentioned it, I believe, once or twice before, but the AARP Movies for Grown-Ups was just a collection of older critics who hand out awards for movies that they think, you know, are decent movies for older people. But it was nominated for Best Comedy at the AARP Movies for Grown-Ups. And bizarrely, they nominated Jane Asher, who played the widow, for Best Supporting Actress. What? Just full stop. That's weird. Best Supporting Actress of 2007. I don't agree. It got remade pretty quickly. Yeah. Obviously, there is the US one that got made in 2010. Dinklage returns in that in the same role. But there are actually two more remakes mm. as well, both of them from India. There is a 2009 Hindi remake called Daddy Cool. Mm -hmm. And there is also a Kannada remake in 2010 that doesn't have an English language title. But it's not Daddy Cool. No. But yeah, that's it. That's the production history <laughs> of yep. Death at a Funeral. I suppose we should just sort of start with the humour of it, I suppose, because I think that is going to be our main point of distinction between me and both of you, it seems, but probably more specifically Jean. I personally think that this needed to be nastier and more absurd. I wanted a bit of Monty Python in it, and I wasn't getting it. It felt curiously watered down. I think I put it in the review I, I wrote for my blog. I think I said something like, it's like a cup of tea that has had the, the bag taken out too soon. It's vaguely British, but it's not strong enough to really make an impact. 
I would tend to agree with you. I was a lot cooler on it this time watching it, but yeah, I would I would tend to agree. When it's hitting its absurd points, it's at its strongest. But, as you said, it needs more of that. This is where a lot of Alan Tudyk's part comes in, and that's a lot of the more absurd stuff. The stuff about the Valium is where it gets quite absurd, but outside of that, a lot of the conflicts between characters are just kind of real human conflicts that people have. This might be a good litmus test. What was the character you guys found the funniest? Andrew Nyman's character. Harley? Honestly, I was more into the situational elements of mm. the humor, less specific characters. I like Peter Dinklage the most. Yeah. I think that's the best thread, is the, the dead body thread. Mm. The Alan Tudyk one, I admire what Alan Tudyk's doing. It's a great physical performance. It's a great, you know, comedy performance. But it's also nothing that we've never seen before, and it's something that we'll see many times again. We've seen naked, sweaty Alan Tudyk before. <laughs> Yeah, but also just the whole idea of, oh, you know, normally very rigid, traditional conservative person accidentally takes drugs and look how wacky they're being. I do like how it does seem that they were like, hey, Alan, here's a prop that you can use. Do what you want. Hmm. Yeah, it felt like they were just letting him do whatever he liked. There definitely seems to be more improv in the Tudic sections than anywhere else. Oh, for sure. Because really, a lot of his segments are either him trapped in the bathroom or him on the roof. Yeah. And, you know, that that leaves him a lot of wiggle room to do just what he likes, like with the toilet paper perched on the roof like some sort of naked, sweaty gargoyle. That's a good thread. The dead body thread is a good thread. I think Mm. the thread between the brothers could have been focused on more, but I think that's a good thread also. There are things here we don't need. Like, you and Bremner, get rid of him. Yeah, you know, he can be gone. We don't. He he adds literally nothing. He's just a skeevy guy. Tell me a single action he takes that has any impact on the plot at all, ever. Nothing. Nothing. Exactly. He just makes people's day worse. Yes, and I would argue that the character is sort of anti-comedy. Yeah. You know, the movie gets less funny every time he comes on screen. Yeah, he's not necessary. And I believe in the American version, he's played by Luke Wilson. Yeah. That character. And as much as I enjoyed the role of Uncle Alfie... We don't need him. Let's be honest. No. He's just another complication. He is the distraction that we get for Peter Dinklage to hit his head on the coffee table. In yeah. the film's worst example of comedy. Sure. Yeah. Um, but Peter Vaughn does commit. Yes, he does. And, and I do like Peter Vaughn as an actor. In the stuff he did far later on into his career in Game of Thrones, he, he's quite good in that. I do think the thread between the brothers needed a bit more air. It did. I think we needed to learn a lot more about Rupert Graves' character. I think we needed to hear more about him. We needed to hear more about his career and his books. And it it was never really clear to me exactly how famous he was supposed to be. Is he supposed to have been a little bit successful? Or is he supposed to be on like a, a, I don't know, a a John Grisham level, you know? Not like Stephen King or J.K. Rowling or any of these like gigantic heavy hitters, but like someone whose name people recognize when they see it on the book I think it's a lot of people from his family and people from around their area know about his books and that he's successful enough to live in New York, but he is sort of hemorrhaging money because he is this very vain... Well, yes, he's... He's got, like, a gigantic penthouse apartment. Yeah. He has to travel a first class anywhere. And even successful authors, unless you are Stephen King or J.K. Yeah. Rowling, you don't really get enough money and to... And I think you hear, or you overhear when the brothers are screaming at each other that the main character causes stuff pulp trash. 
Yeah. So I feel like it might be like your middle of the road kind of author. He's maybe he's maybe not Stephen King, but he's Dean Koontz. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of that robot chicken skit. It's Stephen King learning that his his new neighbour is Dean Koontz. <laughs> Nightmares and dreamscapes. Well, hey there, King Vic. Well, that's me. Hope you like chills of that caliber, because old Kunzi just bought a place down the road. Of course, it ain't quite as nice as your house. Foundation's a little creaky. Doesn't really hold water, but same neighborhood, right? Ooh, got an iPod, eh? Old Kunzi went with the zoo. Almost as good. Not quite as well reviewed. Doesn't quite get the shelf space an iPod does, but it costs the same, which is weird. Yeah. Always room for second best, I say. tend to agree with you on the fact that the conflict there is not as well cooked as the others but i feel like it is the most real conflict that would occur at a funeral the brother promising to help pay and then sort of reneging on that and just being a person who comes into town and everyone loves him but then pissing off and well and, and here's the yeah. thing McFadden and Greaves do have good chemistry as brothers. Yes. I, I think what I wanted was more of a structured arc for them. Mm. I wanted them to start off estranged, and I wanted them to have to band together a lot more than they do to solve the problems. This is a very brisk movie. It keeps going. After everyone's arrived, it just goes on kind of in real time. Yeah. And that's a very crowded hour and a half. It's too crowded a cast. Like, as we said, you and Bremer can go... Uncle Alfie can probably go. We don't need nearly the amount of focus on the priest as we get. Do appreciate how he's just trying to move things along and yeah. has so many other like funerals and hospice care that he needs to get to. You're right. It's just too short mm. for the number of characters. It's 90 minutes long and we've got two larger casts. Plus, we've got these different threads. We've got, yeah. I mean, we've got the, the two main threads, which are the... the Peter Dinklage and Alan Tudyk threads, but then we've got Ewan Bremner's stuff going on. We've got what the priest's doing. We've got, you know, all of these smaller characters like Martha's father or Uncle Alfie or or all of these things that this just could have been streamlined a lot more or it needed to be two hours long. Yeah. Mm. It just needed more space to breathe. Yeah. and, And I feel like it's sort of... It's trying to set itself up as being this sort of like bang, 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 quick paced comedy, you know, a laugh a minute kind of thing. But I don't think it is nearly as funny as it needs to be to do that. I don't think it's nearly as, I I keep coming back to it. I would love a version of this movie that was Monty Python, Mm. you know, that had all of this stuff in it. You can just imagine what like, I don't know, Eric Idle and John Cleese as the two brothers 
would have been like. Which one do you get to be the author? Eric John Idle. Cleese. You have John Cleese as the neurotic one. Really, they could do either, but... Just have him come in with that Basil Fawlty energy. Yeah. I looked it up. Frank Oz was born in Britain. Yep. But he moved to America when he was like seven. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense to me when I think about the style of humour that's on display here. Mm. It's British, but it's British toned down so much to make it make sense internationally. Yeah. I am having trouble discussing this movie because its main threads are kind of straightforward. Well, why don't we why don't we go through the different threads individually then? Yeah. Let's start with the main one. Let's start with Peter Dinklage. Yep. I think that's a great idea. Like that's a great premise. You know, you're at the funeral, some guy you've never seen before takes you aside and tells you something about the deceased that has the potential to be really scandalous if it came out, and he wants money. I like the way that Peter Dinklage reveals it, how he's like, we were close. And then there's yeah. just the shot of Matthew McFadden looking around the room and putting things together. Yeah, Peter Dinklage is fantastic in this because yeah. he is giving a kind of complicated performance. Yeah. He isn't playing it as like a evil extortionist no. role. He's playing it as a guy who is not being particularly well-behaved and is doing something that is morally objectionable, blackmailing these two guys on the day of their father's funeral. But he's seeking what he thinks he's owed. Yes, but he's also playing it in such a way that makes him seem a lot more emotionally vulnerable than Mm. he might otherwise. He's bringing stuff that's not on the page. That, given a little bit more time, he might not be going as far as going to the actual funeral and extorting money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's just an interesting thing that he he is very patient and yeah. doesn't and doesn't force Daniel into the office earlier. Yeah, he gives him time. Which is like, I mean, I feel I worry that all of this sounds like we're excusing that character. No, but like what he's doing is just outright morally yeah. objectionable. Yeah. And indeed, having an affair with a married man is outright morally objectionable. But um, I feel like there's a, a level of of depth and dimension to him that. Dinklage is bringing that the script did not. And the way that Dinklage is playing it, even when Dinklage says stuff like... Is that your first attempt? What? The the novel. That's your first novel, isn't it? Yeah. So? No, nothing. I tried writing once. It it didn't work for me either. I think it's like a gift. You either have it or you don't. Must be hard for you, though, Daniel, living up to your brother's reputation. You know, always living in the shadow of a sibling like that. By the way... I read your latest novel. Ah, wow. Really good stuff. (laughs) He performs that dialogue in such a way that you're really not sure whether the character intends it to be an insult. The difference between the scene where he's criticising the book, in this one, he seems very sincere about Mm. what he's saying. But in the American one, in the remake, he's a far more aggressive, bitter character in that one. And that just goes with the difference in tone they're going for. Yeah. It's a much more blunt movie in the American version. But I do like the dimension that Dinklage is giving here. He's always a great actor. Yeah, He's one of my favorite actors working today. And it's because he has that attention to detail. And he does such good physical comedy here too. Like when he's been drugged, when they've tied him up, and everything is going completely off the rails. When he's getting tied up, and the look on his face when he overhears that he's been drugged with acid is brilliant. Oh, there is no funnier a shot to me in this movie than the shot in which he sits up from the coffin with bloodshot eyes and just shrieks. Yeah. 
I love the shot of Rupert Graves how he's like, what are you doing in my father's oh, coffin? <laughs> Peter Dinklage has the most expressive face. Mm. Like, mm. he can do so much with his eyes. And when the movie is popping off in a really big way, that's when it's the most engaging. Yeah. You know? When Alan Tudyk is freaking out at the beginning because he thinks the person in the coffin is moving. Mm. You know, that whole hullabaloo. And then it happens again, and he's like, I was right, I told you! I don't like the gag that gets us to him hitting his head on the coffee table. Uncle Alfie in the bathroom. Exactly. That one feels very American. Part of it is my general just, you know, sort of germophobia. Mm. But at the same time, I stop and I analyse that joke, and I just don't know what I'm supposed to find funny. Ha ha! An old man's fecal matter got on that other man's hand. And then when he tried to wash it, some of it got in his mouth. What a hilarious jape. What makes it funny to me is Howard's reactions to things. How this is a guy who is almost about to have an anxiety attack at every point. He's freaking out because of the discoloration on his wrist. He doesn't know what has caused it. He's had to take Uncle Alfie up the hill. He's already covered in sweat and smells. So he's sitting there, he's having a really, really bad day, and everything is just making it worse. He finds out that he's poisoned a guy with five acid tablets instead of one, and now he's stuck in this situation. Everything is going bad for him. And I think Andrew Nyman plays it with a frantic nature. If he is as nervous a character as he appears to be, I don't buy for a second that he keeps interacting in the way that he does. As someone who who has that level of, like, anxiety and nervousness and, you know, that's not how that goes. I'm sorry, guys, but if if that ever happens, I'm calling an ambulance. I don't care if it, if it means that you guys go to jail for tying up a little person on the floor of your office. I, I, that's not my fault. He is the only one who hasn't done anything objectionable up until that point. He gave pills labelled Valium yep. at the request of other people. Mm. Yeah. After being told incorrect information about a medical emergency, he needed yeah. to call the, the authorities. And the fact that he doesn't, I mean, this is the great thing of like, I like to imagine that this whole family is destroyed in the wake of this movie's events mm. because so many of them are going to prison. What remains of them is being sued into oblivion by Peter Dinklage. Peter Dinklage owns that house now. That's where he lives. <laughs> He gets more than he was asking for. Yeah, he gets everything because the only characters in this movie, there there are no characters involved in that plot thread that get away. Like, And more than that, it gets like international press attention mm. because the author's involved. Mm. Like, It is the subject of a, like a, a Netflix documentary. <laughs> yeah, I, I just... I think the part with Andrew Nyman that makes me laugh the most is when he's trying to console the widow. He's like the worst person to possibly be sitting there because he's being so pedantic about future death. How he's just telling the story of, I was at a pub and I knew this guy and he called this guy's mother a moose and this guy just stabbed him in the neck. Just honestly, you wouldn't believe the amount of blood spurting out. Turns out, didn't even know what a moose was. Death can just happen to you. The way he tells that story, the nervous energy just makes me laugh every time. I do like what Chris Marshall is doing here. He's playing the same characters he does in a lot of these comedies that turn into farces. The panic on his face when he gets 
told that this guy has taken five of the tablets. Well, let's turn to the Chris Marshall involvement, the, the, the drugging. Immediate solution, right? Yeah. Why are they keeping Alan Tudyk at the funeral? I wouldn't have. I wouldn't. The easy thing is to say, he's having a reaction to medication. He's feeling ill. I have to take him home. Not even that. What's Andy Nyman doing? Send him off with Alan Tudyk. I actually would love that kind of interaction. He's not a relative. Mm. He's just a friend of Daniel's. He can go. Yeah. They make this false situation where... Every all three of them need to remain at the funeral, and and no other arrangement can be made. But it's not the case. I'd probably send Chris Marshall to go help Alan Tudyk out here. Well, no, they they make some. There's a, a line of dialogue between Martha and uh, Troy where they talk about how they can't leave or else the widow will never forgive them. Like, she's their aunt. The dead guy's their uncle. Yeah. The answer here is just to go and send Nyman. Mm. But then again, will he provide the best? overseeing of Alan Tudyk. Probably not. Or even just like, I'm sure. There's like a, there's like a, a, a cool cousin in one of those random extras, right? Yeah. Like, you're not telling me that there is there is not a single person in that entire funeral party of like a good 30 people that you cannot take aside, explain the situation to, and say, please help. Yeah. I can think of several family members that if I were in Martha's situation, I would be comfortable turning to and saying, please get my significant other out of here. You could probably call us and we'd be like, okay. <laughs> exactly. Like, why does they, do they not call someone to come to the location yeah. and drive him away? Call an outside party. But I do like that at the final bit of the movie we get is Jane, Daniel's wife, gave Uncle Alfie some of the Valium. Yeah. Just sitting on the roof naked. Everything's yep. so fucking green. I do want to talk a little bit about some aged yep. problems with the fact that we are supposed to find it funny, the idea of a gay relationship at all to be amusing. I get that it's contextualized by the fact that, you know, he was closeted and had a family. But the fact that we get the same joke, your dad was a gay? Mm, that's quite dated. Yeah. The fact that we get, you know, the reactions to the, the photos of them together, mm. it, it's sort of veering close to that infamous sort of Ace Ventura trans joke mm. in the way, like, the pure disgust with which people react to the idea. I would react that way if I saw my dad having sex with anybody. Yes, but, like, I'm not reading that as a sex joke. I'm reading that as a gay joke because, mm. like, the fact that they felt that it was funny to add in that explicit a photo, I, I think if the Peter Dinklage character was played by a woman, I don't think that joke's there. No. I don't think that image is there. No. Because I think it plays differently. Of course. And I think that that's a bit of an issue. And I think, like, when you go into the fact that, like, a, that bit about... Apparently, Frank Oz said on the video commentary that the photo that was there was of actual gay pornographic films to, to you know, further, like, shock the actors and whatever. That sort of implies to me a mindset that I'm not thrilled with either. Mm. I'm not saying it's, like, a homophobic movie. That's not what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm saying that it has some very 2007 things to it. Oh, yeah, of course. In a movie that I'm already struggling with the comedy with, it further pushes me off. Oh, yeah, it, it is absolutely dated. And the remake is dated as well. Yeah. And look, I do agree with you. The movie itself I don't think is homophobic because the gay character we do get in the movie is very complex, is, yeah. is well-performed, 
it has elements of the character that are sympathetic. Yeah. If we were having this conversation today, we would rightly be pointing out the fact that the only living gay character in the whole film is the chief antagonist Mm. is a, a schemer who is trying to make a spectacle out of the funeral Mm. of his dead lover Mm. and you know that their whole relationship is treated as a total scandal Mm. like the framing of that the coding of that 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 character and that scenario is not great if i were the brothers i would say look i will take your information down you can take ours we will be in contact we just can't do this here we will talk just not here just organize to pay it after the funeral at some point. What makes you think that the Peter Dinklage character is going to go for that? He's he's very he's very militant about getting the money now. And when they say we're not going to give you the money, he's like right there. He's going to go out and show them all the photos. That's what I'm saying is yeah. that like underneath it all, he is a three dimensional character. P- Dinklage finds stuff to play in him that is is interesting. But let's not pretend that he's not presented as extremely callous mm. and greedy. He is. Yeah. And the fact that at every stage his relationship with the deceased father is presented as a joke in every mention of it, in the way every character reacts to it. There's never any, like, genuine connection between the two of them that's underlined. It is always, always presented as a joke for the straight characters to react to. Mm, Sure. Like I said, I'm not saying that the movie's homophobic. I'm saying that the movie was made 15 years ago and there's stuff in it that makes it a hard sell these days. Yeah, absolutely. And I fully agree with you on that. One of the elements I really do like is after everything's popped off, after Peter Dinklage has risen out of the coffin, looking like a maniac, how McFadden plays his emotional outburst Mm. going into his, you know, proper eulogy for his father. That, I like the performance too, I agree. That moment fell flat for me because I don't buy it. I don't buy it. That, like that. First off, it's not a very good speech. But at the same time, you're telling me that that stops everyone in their tracks. Like there's an all-out brawl going on on the floor. Peter Dinklage is still high as a kite, just crawled out of a coffin. They like they were trying to dispose of his body. The the mother has just found out that her dead husband was cheating on her with this guy. And you're telling me that just the simple act of Matthew McFadden yelling, "My father was an exceptional man," gets everyone to stop dead? No. This keeps going. This like this goes outside. This ends up on a current affair. Like this is not a scenario in which. Oh, this movie would play so differently if it was a Bogan family. Yeah, it it sort of speaks to what I think is. It feels flat to me. It's going through all the motions of what it thinks it should do. I mean, it it thinks it should have all of these characters. It thinks it should have all of this particular type of humor. It thinks it should be British and it should be doing this and it should you know have the big moment at the end where the son finally gives, you know, an off-the-cuff eulogy that solves everything. But it doesn't, it hasn't done the legwork to get there. Mm. Well, and I do think it's the fact the movie is so brief Mm. that, yeah, yeah, I I do tend to agree with you on that. Yeah, maybe, maybe, John, maybe, like, we have been a little critical of this. Maybe you just want to give the the case for. So, this movie, not only does the comedy affect me, but sort of just the setting of it. We watched this movie, not for the first time, but we've watched this movie after every funeral we've been to, and I felt it really cathartic, as... Funerals are very complicated events. Got people not 
going to the funeral because of issues within family and you've got people being civil up until the point when they're not and to have been as heightened as this you're i'm sorry but you're telling me that a little person a bound and gagged little person has never risen out of a coffin and then been attacked by the deceased's widow you're telling me that's never happened at a funeral you've been to lawson you'd be the first person i tell if it did (laughs) but anyway it's people come out of the woodwork a funeral brings out the best and the worst from people in equal measure in my experience there's this layer of civility over proceedings and then people get back to their bickering and their arguing and their own conflicts and in that sense farce aside this is a very real depiction to me of how complicated families can be. I actually do have something to say on that note. The movie doesn't have a lot of mourning in it. There are somber moments, of course. I feel so sorry for the widow. Mm. What, like, from every step, that's a traumatising day. Mm. Yeah. It would be really hard to find out. Even leading up to that, Alan Tudyk pushing the coffin over, like, even if Peter Dinklage had not been a factor at all, that's still, like, it's played for gags, and it, it, it is funny in a cringy way, but, like, Think for a moment. Yeah. About... When she's doing that 30-yard stare in the backyard. Yeah. A very close... At a very close loved one's funeral that the coffin is knocked over and their corpse rolls out onto your living room floor. Right in front of you. Mm. Daniel and Jane have been so careful to keep her away from the organization of it. You know, she's not there when he looks into the coffin at the beginning. Finds a completely different person. We do sort of get the impression that she hasn't seen him since he died. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to be a long journal entry. It's traumatic and it's sympathetic, but also I actually think in the version of this I want, in the Monty Python version, they're a lot nastier to her than they are in this version. You know, this they get they mind some real nasty comedy out of that that Oz avoids here. I suppose you're looking for a movie that's a little more harsh. I'm looking for a movie that acknowledges that its basic concept is far nastier and more absurd than this movie acknowledges. Mm. This movie takes a, a nasty, absurd concept, you know, a death at a funeral, hiding the corpse, you know, gay affair, guy hires a kite on the roof. It takes these concepts that, I mean, the joke of it is that they are breaking the social mores of what a funeral should be. Yeah. You know, that's the joke, is this is very inappropriate, undignified. You know, it's it's all of, like, the... It's a farce. It's, well, it's all of the sort of seedier parts of, of human beings that we ignore at funerals. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the intrusion of that stuff into what is normally a very dignified and controlled setting. That's the joke. But the premise that they've thought up is nasty. It's it is absurd. But the movie always seems to me reluctant to shave as much of the nastiest off nastiness off as they can. It's soft. It's soft, exactly. There is not even a discussion of the morality of hiding Peter Dinklage's body. Like there is no reckoning for any of these characters of the action that they're doing. And that's there there's the humour there. There's the humour that needs to be mined there. That's where someone like John Cleese or Eric Idle would have come in with something like really nasty and callous and witty to do that. They would have found something that would have would have gone even beyond the the action we've seen to be, just be outright appalling. And that's the 
the fashion that it needed to take. It needed, frankly, for so many of its characters to be far more unlikable than they were. Mm. The only actual likable characters in this whole movie for, by their actions are the widow, Alan Tudyk, and Alan Tudyk's fiance. Mm. Oh, the, the wife, Daniel's wife. Oh, yeah, right, because she, you're, you're right, she doesn't know that they're hiding the body. Good point. <laughs> All she knows is that he's trying to get rid of a person who's ruining the funeral. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't know. It just seems unwilling to go that final step and really sink the teeth in. Mm. I do think we're reaching the end here. Is there anything else that you guys would like to add? No. No, just okay. that, like, because of emotional reasons, this movie has always appealed to me, and it's myriad versions do because mm. it is saying something about human nature about you know how these events in people's lives weddings funerals birthdays are all one misbehaving person away from completely falling apart mm. and it's sort of this sort of screaming against the void begging it to please not, but then the void comes in like an oiled up Alan Tudyk and ruins everything. I think John just likes the high wire act, the the, yeah. the sort of tension of, is it all going to fall apart? Is it all going to collapse? Yeah. It's a cringe comedy that I don't cringe at, that I just smile, that it's a whole thing of this guy trying so desperately hard to keep everything together to criminal degrees. There is an entry in the IMDb Parents Guide this week. Mm. Is it about Alan Tudyk's ass? Yes. Yep. For the uninitiated, the IMDb Parents Guide segment is when we talk about the prudish and or pervy entries in the user-run IMDb Parents Guide for the movie we're discussing. This is both prudish and pervy somehow given the extreme detail with which the Alan Tudyk stuff is detailed. It's in the sex and nudity section, obviously. Near the end of the movie, Alan Tudyk is totally naked, but only his bare buttocks are ever shown. This happens at least 12 times, and lasts only a few seconds each time, with the exception of one that lasts for an extended period of time. There's one time it is shown up close, and at least two shots show him seated while nude, slightly exposing his pubic region but no penis. Jesus Christ. They paused and looked. No, they timed it. So now why don't we each go around and say who are our MVPs for this movie, what our favourite scene or sequences, and who we would recast with this podcast patron saint, character actor John Lithgow. Knock, knock, who's there? <laughs> Me! I will start us off and I will say that my MVP here is Peter Dinklage. He is the funniest performance in the movie in my opinion but he's also giving the most three-dimensional performance the most nuanced his scenes are always the best you know whenever he's on screen the movie is always operating at the best that it can operate and so i've got to give it to him because for all of the things i didn't connect with in this movie i really connected with with the stuff that he was doing in terms of my favorite scene or sequence it's got to be the end when he claws his way out of the coffin in the middle of the eulogy it is that moment where they where it does get as absurd as the rest of the movie as i wanted the rest of the movie to be it does get that absurd it does get that nasty and so that is the moment that i'm going to go with because like that shot of peter Dinklage sitting up in the coffin bloodshot eyes shrieking is is truly like that should be his photo on imdb i mean <laughs> i mean that's great but in terms of who I would recast with this podcast, patron saint character actor John Lithgow, I don't know. There's a part of me that really wants to cast him in the Peter Dinklage role. Because as I said, that wasn't 
a role that was originally written for a little person. And I just, you know what? I'm going to go for it. Him. Yes. Him. Because like I, that shot, like imagine that same shot, but it's John Lithgow sitting up with bloodshot eyes shrieking. Yeah. I got to go with it. I got to go there. Yeah. And like the only other one I would really was like thinking, well, there were two other ones I was considering. I don't think Daniel's an interesting enough character to justify the use of John Lithgow. And Uncle Alfie, I've no interest in seeing John Lithgow shit on a man's hand. So let's just go with Peter. My MVP has got to be Peter Dinklage. He's the actor who's doing the most interesting stuff here. He's the most compelling on screen when he is there. And my favorite Xeno sequence is, I don't know, it's the scene where they're talking about drugging him. Just his reactions when he's lying there tied up are... Perfect, and the timing of those cuts to him are really good too. I like what Chris Marshall is doing in that scene. I just think it's the scene where everything starts to go into a gear where the, you know, the high-wire act is beginning. When the tension of people finding out stuff has started to become a factor. Who I would get John Lesko to play is a complicated answer. I was thinking maybe the priest. I don't want to lose Peter Tinklage here, I, I just simply don't. But I do think Lithgow has that dignified energy for the priest character. And it would give the priest character a good enough reason to be popping up once in a while. And how he would rush the people at the end. I think he works as the priest. Because I don't want to replace Peter Dinklage. For me, my MVP is Peter Dinklage because of all of the reasons you said. He makes this movie his own. He is the only cast member who returns in another adaptation. And it's for good reason. He is really good here. They say that the role wasn't written for him, but it feels like it was. For my favorite scene or sequence, it is everything to do with tying him up and feeding him the drugs and all the way up to him hitting his head. It is such a just constant bam, 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 bam of complications occurring that it just has to make me laugh how complicated situations are getting. For who I would get John Lithgow to play, it's a little complicated. Part of me thinks he would be funny in a small role. I know that that seems antithetical to the point of having John Lithgow here, but I think it would be funny if he showed up as the dead body at the beginning, like that it's actually John Lithgow, or have him be, I don't know, specific other characters you would kind of have to rewrite because John Lithgow is the biggest actor that they would have gotten. At the time, yeah. At the time. You know, Peter Dinklage, his star rose with Game of Thrones, but he was nowhere near the household name that he is now. So whoever you get Lithgow as would necessitate a rewrite to make him more in the film, which kind of complicates the way that the story works somewhat. All right, so now why don't we do our official vote on whether or not we are a pro-death at a funeral podcast uh, just a bit of housekeeping. We have had a little bit of discussion and we have decided to change the rules very slightly on how we do this segment, mainly because we realise that it's just so difficult for a movie to get an anti-vote. We do tend to talk about movies that we like or movies that are interesting and we do tend to actually, even if we don't like like, like them, if they're interesting, we tend to give them a pass and we, we really do want to, uh, to keep the door open for anti-votes. Uh, so we are lowering the standard a little bit. Now we are thinking more in the sense of like, we can still like a movie and be anti that movie in the sense that that movie clearly should not have been made. And the example we've been discussing a little bit, although Jean disagrees, is The Cat in the Hat. That that's a movie that I voted anti for, but Harley voted ambivalent. But Harley's like, in all reasonable 
people's minds that movie should not have been made. And that's sort of with this prestige Blu-ray line, what we're thinking, I suppose we should be thinking, what movie would we not only say no to, but laugh people out of the office for even suggesting to be on our prestigious Blu-ray line? Yes, so audience, they would be laughing at my suggestions. So that would be the other thing that we're changing is that it still requires a unanimous vote for us to be pro a movie, but it will now only require a majority vote to be anti a movie. Part of it is also that we've been cooking up a really funny sound clip to use. Yeah, we really want to be able to use the sound clip for the anti. It's good. Yeah. So... That's that, although, of course, that's not going to come into play this week because I know Jean's not going to vote anti, I don't think Harley is, and I'm not either. This is a movie that I liked fine while I was watching it, but I think that just the legacy of it had built it up into something that it isn't. It disappointed me that it was so unfocused, that it had so much going on with with so little execution. I don't think it's funny enough, I don't think it's nasty enough, I don't think it's absurd enough, but it's also not. A movie, I, I I get it. I get why some people like yeah. it. I get why Jean likes it, given his love of like stuff like slapstick and things like that. But I can't go there, you know. And that really, I suppose, is our our new standard. I suppose. Can you see someone liking this? Yeah, ambivalent is a movie that is justifiable in its existence, yeah. but a, a a matter of taste precludes us from yeah. being yeah. pro. And that is where I'm at here, so I'm voting ambivalent. I would have to say ambivalent too. I do like it, I do enjoy it while I'm watching it, and I am similar to John in the regard where I can enjoy a, a bit of slapstick now and again, but I was a lot colder on it this time, watching it. I had built it up in my head as a lot funnier than it ended up being this watch. Yeah, yeah, just, just ambivalent. My heart is saying pro because of how much emotion I've got wrapped up with the movie, the fact that it appeals to me and my comedic sensibilities in terms of it being such a complicated situation that people are desperately trying to hold together. It sets off my anxiety, but in a funny, fun way, not in a way where I'm actually having issues. But I agree with some of the quality concerns that you guys have. So I can't say that I would put it on that mythical line of films. It has a lot of impact while I'm watching it, but I agree with a lot of what you guys have said, even though I wouldn't go as negative as some of the things you guys have said, if that makes sense. Like, intellectually, I get it. From a filmmaking standpoint, I get why... Certain characters don't need to be there, why it could have been better written even at the time in 2007. But again, I do have that emotional, you know, connection to the film. So I I guess I would say a soft ambivalent erring on the side of pro. I'm trying to split that difference between film critic Jean and audience member Jean. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. We are not a pro death at a funeral podcast, more on the ambivalent side. So, Lawson, what do we have next week? Well, next week, it's still a funny movie, but we are gearing back up into more, like, plot-heavy, more dramatic fare. Next week, we will be talking about the fantasy adventure comedy film Stardust, loosely based on the Neil Gaiman book of the same name. If you'd like to follow along at home, it is available for streaming in Australia on Stan. It is also available for uh, rental and purchase on the Amazon, YouTube, Fetch, 
and Apple stores. Yep, and I've been listening to the audiobook of that because I'm a big fan of Neil Gaiman. And so I'll be providing a lot of points of comparison in the coming episode. If you'd like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exit Do the Candy Counter. If I join myself and on the bright side, you can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode specific feedback and movie recommendations. Have you seen Death at a Funeral or any of its myriad remakes, be it the American, Hindi, or Kannada one? Please tell us what Daddy Cool is like. Yes, please tell us if you've watched Daddy Cool. But you can also like, comment, rate, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Just keep in mind that when you're commenting on your podcast app, whether you're commenting on the specific episode or podcast on the whole depends on what service you're using. The links to the blogs and the Twitter are in the description of the episode. Did you know that every voice in a robot-run future, the voices of the robots, are all done by Clancy Brown? Okay. He's a very prolific voice actor. It makes sense he'd get the work. Okay, sure, but how? What do you mean, how? He records the root voice lines. They use the AI then to reconstruct what they have to say. It's it's fairly simple, John. Why Clancy Brown? Like I said, he's prolific. What was the thought pattern for them? Okay, was Clancy Brown the voice of them before they gained sentience? Yeah. Like a series situation. So how did Clancy Brown get the international worldwide contract for being the voice of every robot on the planet? You just have to look at Clancy Brown's filmography, of course. He's extremely versatile. He is the voice of Mr. Krabs. He is the voice of Lex Luthor from the old-school Justice League cartoon. No, he's just, like, incredibly prolific as a voice actor and physical performer. So, you know, Clancy Brown won out, you know? That's just how it works sometimes. It can't all be John Lithgow. No, but I mean, like... Other actors... Whatever the Siri voice is or something, that would... Or the Stephen Hawking voice or... I mean, someone like Nolan North... No, Frank Welker. Come on, it's gotta be Frank Welker. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-oh! I do like the randomness of Clancy Brown, though. That he is one of those voice actors that does have a fairly thriving live-action career as well. The dude is on the grind. He works. I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and I will continue, to be Jean Lewis.